You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let's get our Bibles open to Luke chapter 2. We're going to finish Luke chapter 2, which is going to leave us only 22 other chapters to get through in the Gospel of Luke as we march verse by verse through God's Word. I want to remind you the very reason that Dr. Luke is writing this book is to convince us of who Jesus is. And he's writing to a very specific individual. His name was Theophilus. And he's giving us an orderly account. One of the things that Luke is doing, like a good trial attorney, is he's bringing these witnesses before us one by one. Uh, We found out who the angel thought Jesus was. We find out who John the Baptist thought Jesus was, even before he was born in his mother's womb. We find out who Mary thinks he was. We find out who the shepherds thought Jesus was. Last week we were introduced to Simeon and Anna, who they thought Jesus was. And today we are going to get the key witness, the star witness, and that is Jesus himself. Luke is going to present to us who Jesus thought Jesus was. So we're going to pick up the story here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. Let's read it. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Again, Luke gives us all these geographical details. Uh, The story started out in Jerusalem, and uh, you remember they came to Jerusalem. That's where Simeon and Anna met Jesus there as they brought him as a 40-day-old baby to be consecrated before the Lord. And then from Jerusalem, they go back to their home town, which was in the northern part of Israel in the region of Galilee to their small town named Nazareth. And then it says in verse 40, what happened over the course of the next 12 years, 12 years of history is wrapped up in verse 40. It says this, and the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. We've learned that Jesus was 100% man and he was 100% God. And what we find here in verse 40 is, as a man, Jesus grew physically. As a man, Jesus grew intellectually. And as a man, Jesus grew spiritually. And that's the hope that we would have of, of every young man. And each one of us, like Jesus, needs to grow in those three areas. And so from the time that he was a baby until the time that he was 12 years old, what did Jesus do? He grew. And the information that we're about to read here in this next paragraph of scripture is the only information that we have about what happened to Jesus between the ages of an infant to the age of about 30 years old. And here's what we learn beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem. Remember, they were living in Nazareth, the northern part of, the, of Israel, and they went back to Jerusalem, it says, every year. Why did they do that? Because that's where you had to go for the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to the custom, and when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. 
And so I want you to notice the godliness of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mother and father. And so here they are as a good Jewish couple. They were exactly the kind of parents that the Old Testament scriptures were designed to build. And what they did faithfully and regularly and religiously is they went to the place of worship. It says they went every year because every year was this, was this annual feast that was so much a part of the spiritual identity of the Jewish people. And they didn't go because they had to, they went because they wanted to. It was about a 60 mile journey south. It was expensive and it was time consuming. And you realize back in those days, you couldn't stay home and live stream the Passover service. You actually had to go to the gathering place where the people of God would come from all over the country in this one annual event. Jerusalem would swell to about eight to 10 times the size of its population there. Everybody descended there um, in Jerusalem for this Passover feast. And the, one of the reasons they wanted, that, wanted to be there is because this is the way that parents taught their children who they were. You didn't just go to, to Jerusalem and go celebrate the Passover because it was an event. The Passover was a part of their identity. And in order for a child, a 12-year-old child, to know who he was, he had to participate in these key opportunities of worship because it told the story of the Jewish people. Now, I would just like to suggest that um, for some people in our church, we find all kinds of reasons why we can't get to church every week because, man, it's cold outside or it snowed three inches or three feet, as it might do occasionally around here. Um, we use excuses like, man, it's, it's just too expensive. It, it's costly. It's too much trouble. Listen, the parents of Jesus went to a lot of expense, a lot of time, burned a lot of calories walking to Jerusalem. And it was because they understood that the, the, the legacy of their family depended upon the gathered worship experience of the people of God. And that if that was true for the parents of Jesus, that's true for those of us who have children that are 12 or two or 16. We have to prioritize getting to the place of worship no matter how much it cost us. Jesus never asked his parents, are we going to Passover this year? It was just a non-negotiable priority. We're gonna budget for it. We're gonna plan for it. We're gonna prepare for it because not only is this what we do, this is who we are and it was part of Jesus learning in his humanity who he was. And so this was a vital event. Now notice it says he was about 12 years old. Now, can, can you remember what you were like when you were 12 years old? How many of you um, are proud of who you were when you were 12 years old? How many of you have a few memories of some of the stupidest things that you did, you did between the ages of 12 and 13? All right. Now, Jesus didn't do anything stupid when he was 12, but this is, this is such 
an offering to us by Luke because he wants us to understand that in his humanity, Jesus had to go through human development and deal with all the temptations that a 12-year-old boy would have to deal with. And Jesus did it flawlessly. So if you're a 12-year-old boy, the parent of a 12-year-old boy, 12-year-old girl, going through adolescence and you feel like, who am I and why is this so hard? Navigating relationships and navigating acne and, and navigating you know, how to deal with all kinds of temptations. Je- Jesus can relate to what it's like to be a 12-year-old boy. In his humanity, he faced and conquered every temptation that a 12-year-old boy would face. And so we get a little glimpse into what Jesus is like when he's 12. Now, Jewish boys were considered men when they turned 13. Now, much our culture has changed. But uh, Jesus, the very next year, was going to be considered a man. He was going to be responsible for his own economic development. He's going to be responsible to to know a trade and to have an occupation. His father's occupation was a carpenter. And so, of course, what Jesus' father Joseph was teaching him was what his father knew. It was how to take a piece of wood and turn it into something that had value. Isn't that what a carpenter does? And so this would have been the last year of Jesus' father Joseph training him, teaching him, pouring into him everything that was in his head into Jesus' head. He wanted him, one of the things he wanted him to know was how to take a piece of wood, turn it into something useful. And he was also having to train him on all the things that he was experiencing when he went to Passover. He would have to tell him, like, this is why we go to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem is, is the place of, of worship that God has chosen. That's where, that's where Abraham, Father Abraham, remember him? Way back in Genesis chapter 22, I think it is, where where he took his son Isaac and was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac until God provided the lamb and it was the substitute so he didn't have to sacrifice his son. And he was, Father Joseph was training Jesus in all these stories in the Old Testament. He would have to tell him about the temple. You see, there's, there's only really one place on earth where God meets with man as the high priest goes in and on the day of atonement offers sacrifices so that sin can be atoned for and God and man can have a mediator, the high priest. And he would have to tell him these stories. He would have to tell him what the Passover was all about. And this is the greatest event in Hebrew history. The Hebrew people were in bondage and in slavery by the Egyptian people. And there was a night that God said, I want you to spill the blood of a lamb and I want you to put the blood over the doorpost and the death angel is going to pass through and he's going to kill every firstborn son unless... He sees the blood of the lamb and that death angel will pass over that home. 
So Joseph is teaching his son all these things in the final year of his mentoring. And that's what Jesus was experiencing as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem on his way there to celebrate the Passover. Now verse 43 says this, when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. All right, now, we would read that and like, what kind of derelict parents would leave their 12-year-old son on the streets of Jerusalem? And I think Joseph and Mary would just say, hang on, hang on, don't judge us, don't judge us. And I, I, I can have a little sympathy with Joseph and Mary because I have done the very thing that Joseph and Mary did on numerous occasions with several of my children. Um, if you are familiar with our particular history, you know we spent 15 years of our lives, really the early days of our marriage, traveling from church to church to church. We lived in an RV travel trailer. We parked it on church parking lots. And there were times as, as we were traveling where we would just leave a child behind somewhere um, in a truck stop, in a church, and we'd have to go back several hours later and, and find the lost child. Um, there was a time, I remember we were at Disneyland and uh, I think we had all four children, our original children uh, back in that day. And we went through the ride, the Pirates of the Caribbean, and we all had a great time and we filed out. And then four or five minutes later, we're looking around and we're counting one, two, three, where is Zach? We have lost Zachary at Disneyland. And so we had to go on about a 20 minute journey through Disneyland looking for the lost child. We finally found him and he survived that episode. There was a time when uh, we stopped at a truck stop. Now you have to understand, I was driving a semi truck with a 50 foot trailer behind me. 12 hour journey with four children. Just imagine, okay, every week. So there were times we have to pull into the truck stop and I have to fill up the truck with diesel. So I remember this one time pulled up, Andrew and I are in communication. She says, I'm going to take the children and go to the bathroom. I said, fine, I'm going to fill up the truck and then I will come in and use the bathroom before we start our journey once again. So I jumped out of the truck, I'm filling up the tank, finished filling up the tank, put the lid back on, jumped back in the semi truck and I took off to go and uh, park in a parking place so then I could go into the truck stop. Little did I know that when Andrea said, I'll take the children to the bathroom. What she meant was, I will take the children to the bathroom in the trailer. And so when I pulled away from the fuel station, Andrea was in the process of bringing the children out of the trailer. Brooke had already bounced down out of the, the trailer and was standing there. Andrea um, had um, Zach, I think, up with her in the 
trailer, but she was about eight months pregnant with Allie at the time. And so as the trailer started to move, Brooke started to scream, thinking that she's, there they go again, they're going to leave one of the children behind here and I will be stuck in the truck stop for the rest of my life. And Andrea, she jumps down as quick as she can, but she's afraid because Zach's still in the trailer. So she sits down just on the doorstep of the trailer with the baby and she's like trying to pull Brooke back into the trailer while Zach is screaming and Brooke is screaming. Little did I know, I just kept going and parked the trailer, went in the truck stop. Now I'm frustrated because I can't find them anywhere. Like, where did they go? What is wrong with them? Did they not know we have to, we have a schedule to keep here until finally they all come walking in very grumpy and upset with the father who did not know that they had been left behind. So I can totally identify with Mary and Joseph in the, how many of you ever left a child somewhere? And have, did you find them? Did, did, did it work out? Okay, good. Well, that's what is happening here in this episode. So you can imagine the trauma and the fear on both sides. Like what is going on? What's going to happen here? Now, I want you to know what happened. Notice it says, as Jesus was left behind, Joseph and Mary did not know it. Do you know what that teaches us? It is possible to walk through your entire day without noticing Jesus is not going with you. It took them a day's journey to realize something is missing. And when they finally realize Jesus is not with them, they go on a frantic search. It says they began to search for him, but they start looking in the wrong place which is exactly what you and I do typically when we start to search for Jesus. If you think back to the beginning of your Christian experience and maybe God began to open your eyes a little bit to the fact that there is a God, he loves you and there's distance between you and him. And if you're interested and he draws you to himself, you begin to search for him. The search for Jesus almost always begins in the wrong place. You know what we begin to do? We begin to look for peace with God on the inside rather than externally. In order to search for Jesus, there has to be a willingness to admit, first of all, something's missing. If you're just beginning to start your search for Jesus, it's going to take a lot of humility to admit you don't have what you need inside of you. What's missing cannot be supplied from the inside out. It's something that has to be provided from the outside in. We almost always start looking for Jesus in the wrong place. We start looking in philosophy courses. We start looking in mystical experiences, dreams, and we, you, you may ask your sister and she's got an idea of what God is like. Listen, if you want to find Jesus, you have to look in the right place. They didn't find him. They began to search for him among his relatives and acquaintances. They didn't find him until they returned to Jesus and turned to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And so the story picks up here in um, verse 46. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, 
sitting among the teachers, listening to him and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they, scripture says, they had gone a day's journey north from Jerusalem when they realized Jesus is missing. It takes them a day's journey to get back to Jerusalem and then it takes them a day in Jerusalem to find him. And you can imagine how frantic that they were, but when they find him, they find him doing something that was totally unexpected. He's actually quizzing the Bible scholars in the temple. And I love what it says here. It says he was asking them questions in verse 46. Now you would imagine a 12 year old boy asking older men questions, but apparently they didn't know the answers to his questions. So he not only asked them questions, he provided his own answers to their questions. That's why it says at the end of verse 47, they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he's asking his questions and he's providing them his answers. How many of you understand Jesus knows all the answers? How many of you understand that when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know. If he asks you a question, it's because he's trying to teach you something you don't know. Jesus has the answers that you're looking for. And so he provides the right answers. Verse 48 says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. He asked questions so that they would learn. They were astonished and his mother said to him, all right, do you get the picture here? Frantic mom, hairpins flying, upset, out of breath. And this is what she says. The first word out of her mouth is, son, Do 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 you get the intensity in the word there? Notice she didn't say Jesus. She said, son, you're not even worthy of your name right now. You're not even acting like Jesus. Going missing. And you know what she does? She starts scolding him because in her mind, he's done something wrong. She calls him son. And when she lays down the son word, what is she doing? She's trying to get him to understand, you are under my authority. You are the son. I am the mother. It is your job to be exactly where you are supposed to be at all times, right? So she's trying to get him to understand, you you have acted independent of the authority. She's trying to control him. If you've ever had a 12-year-old son, you understand there are times when our 12-year-olds are out of control and they need a mother to help them get back into control. She's doing what a good mom would do. She's misunderstanding the motive of why Jesus went missing. We're going to find out the answer here in just a minute. But she says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, there's our word. Now we've heard that word come from angels and shepherds. Now it's coming from an upset mom. She wants Jesus to see something apparently he can't see. 
Behold, your father, your father, remember him? Loves you so much, he's taught you so much, all that stuff about the wood, all that stuff about the Passover, everything he's tried to do, he's done so much for you. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So this is the first of three questions that we see in the text. The first question is this, why have you treated us so? You could supply another word. Why have you treated us so badly? She doesn't even give him a chance to answer. She goes right in, behold, your father and I who love you so much, how could you treat us so unfairly? How could you do something so unexpected? How could you move in a way that we didn't expect? How could you do something that was so out of our control. You ever ask that question of Jesus? Why are you treating me so badly? Why are you acting so unfairly? And the implication is, if you loved me, you wouldn't be treating me like this. Isn't that the way that sometimes we respond to Jesus? When we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, when we don't understand why he's acting the way that he is, when he's not fulfilling our expectations, when he is unable to be controlled by us, are you tempted at times to ask the same question Mary asked? Why are you treating me like this? This seems so unfair. Why are you treating? If, if you loved me, you would make my life easier. If you loved me, you would never do anything that I wouldn't expect you to do. If you loved me, you would allow me to control you. Those are questions. Maybe we don't say those words, but so often that is the way that we treat Jesus. And the assumption is totally wrong. The assumption is that Jesus would never do anything that we wouldn't expect him to do. We're learning, Mary's learning, that her son is out of control. You know why? Because that's a characteristic of God. God refuses to be controlled. It's the very definition of God. He doesn't have anyone else controlling him. He controls everyone and everything else. So I don't know what kind of chaos is going on in your life. You can be assured Jesus has everything under control. The question for you is, are you gonna trust him in the times when he does something that is so unexplainable and confuses you? And so, this is the first question. Why have you treated us so? Now, there's a second question here, and this question is actually the answer to Mary's question. Mary asks a question, Jesus answers with a question. 
And here's Jesus' question. And by the way, before I read this, I want you to understand these are the first recorded words of Jesus Christ that Luke offers to us in his book. And it is, it is as if this is the very question Luke is trying to help us answer. It's a very important question. Here it is. He says, why are you looking for me? That great question. Maybe the preliminary question is this, are you looking for me? I think one of the things that Jesus is implying here is this, why are you looking for me now? I've been missing for three days. How long did it take you to realize you had lost the nearness of me? It's a great question for each of us. It's like, how long have you been living not noticing Jesus is missing? Now, for some of you who have never accepted Christ, then it's like, how many more years are you gonna live? Are you, are you 12, are you 18, are you 42? Uh, I don't know about you, I lived for 15 years before I realized Jesus was missing from my life. And, and this nagging sense that something is missing that can only be supplied by Jesus, I, I had to go searching for him. And it, it took a whole 24 hour period for Mary and Joseph to realize that. And so I think Jesus is implying, um, our, you know, what was so important that you couldn't realize that I wasn't with you? Isn't that what happens? We, we get so busy, we get so distracted. Mary and Joseph just taking another step, taking another step back to their hometown, things to do, places to go, people to see. And that happens for us in this overcrowded, busy world that we live in. So many things that compete for us, that compete for God, compete for Jesus, that sometimes we don't even realize the most essential piece is missing. And maybe this morning, God is trying to open your eyes that maybe the reason there's so much anxiety in your life is because the essential piece is missing. If you've been a Christian for dozens of years, decades, it is possible for you to keep taking steps and just live your life as if Jesus was kind of an add-on and maybe we can get around to seeing him on Sunday and walk the rest of our week without him. Jesus doesn't want us to go through that. So Jesus is asking, why are you looking for me now? I think there's another reason that he asked this question. He wants us to understand our motive for seeking Jesus. You know, some people search for Jesus for the wrong reasons. And some people live with the philosophy that, you know, if, if I have a relationship with Jesus, then he will not allow bad things to happen to me. And so, of course, I want Jesus in my life. If, if I have Jesus in my life, I, I'm seeking Jesus because I know he's going to prosper me financially or I know he's going to protect my kids or is his life just going to go better. I need an inspirational life coach. And so Jesus is just as good as any. And, and listen, those are all the wrong motives for seeking Jesus. The right motives for seeking Jesus is this, is to realize nothing else in the world can fill what's missing in our lives. No matter how many things you crowd into it, stuff, sex, entertainment, friends, you can cram all that stuff into your life and you will still have a sense that something's missing. And so make sure you give the right answer to Jesus' first question, why are you 
searching for me. Now, if you're not searching for Jesus, I would turn it around. It's like, why aren't you searching for Jesus? Have you not yet had your fill of artificial substitutes for Jesus? He would invite you to search for him. And if you do search for him, what you'll discover very soon is he's been searching for you all along. Another way to ask this question, Jesus would say, why are you looking for me here? Now, remember where they found him. After looking everywhere else, they looked among their their acquaintances and their relatives, and they couldn't find him there. When they got back to Jerusalem, where would you have looked for a 12-year-old boy? How many of you would have started on the soccer field? Wouldn't that be the natural place that you would look? You would go find the playground. You would find the PlayStation or the Xbox. That's where you would find 12-year-old boys. And it gives us an indication as to the view that Mary and Joseph had about Jesus. Mary was looking for a boy. But Jesus was beginning to realize he was a man. And he was beginning to realize he was God. So do you know where he went? He went to the place where men go to meet God. And as he was discovering, I am not a boy, I'm a man. I'm not a man, I am God. Actually, I am a man, I'm a man God, I'm a God man. I'm 100% God, I'm 100% man. And as a 12-year-old boy, he's beginning to discover this, and so he goes to the place where God meets with man in the temple. Which leads to the third question. We see it in verse 49. Here it is. Jesus asked, did you not know I must be in my father's house? Mary asked the question, Why are you dishonoring your father? And Jesus essentially answers, I am honoring my father. I am right where I'm supposed to be. Because Jesus was realizing Joseph was a stepfather. He was a good earthly father. But he was not his true heavenly father. The word father is used in this sense in the Bible in a brand new way. We talk about the fatherhood of God all the time nowadays. We sing songs about God being a good, good father. That was foreign to the Old Testament language about God. God wasn't really viewed as a father. He was viewed as a creator, a ruler, a king. But to call him a father was too intimate. And Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. Because there was an intimacy in his relationship with God that had never been known by a man. And so Jesus knew who his true father was. Tim Keller says that maybe it was at this point that his heavenly father began to mentor him. And as he walked him through the streets of Jerusalem, he began to introduce him to the things that he would see in Jerusalem, maybe over the course of his lifetime. Joseph, the carpenter, taught Jesus how to take a piece of wood and make something useful out of it, his heavenly father is going to teach him how to take a piece of wood 
and make something beautiful and useful out of it as he hangs on that cross as a substitute for sin. Joseph taught him about the temple. This is the place where men meet God and the high priest comes. But his heavenly father began to teach him, you know what? You are going to become the true priest that is the mediator between God and man. You're going to become the true temple. There's not going to be a need for us to come to Jerusalem anymore to meet with God in the temple because people are going to have access to the Father through you, Jesus. Maybe his heavenly Father began to teach him the true meaning of Passover, that he actually was going to become the lamb who would shed his blood to atone for sin so that when the death angel comes and sees the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts, he passes over and we're set free, not from slavery, but from sin. And Jesus, I believe, was being mentored by his father. Now notice in verse 50, it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Verse 51, and he went down to them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Very similar to where we started the whole passage. Over the next 18 years, until we hear anything else about him, what did he do? He continued to increase in wisdom and favor with God and man. Now, do you see the progression that you go through when you go on a search for Jesus? Mary begins searching for Jesus because she senses there's something missing. Before you search for Jesus, there's got to be a sense that there's something missing. If you will let the sense that something is missing lead you on a search for Jesus, you might get to the second phase that Mary got to. She went from searching to scolding because Jesus wasn't acting the way she expected him to act. If you can make it through that phase, you might get to the next phase, which is misunderstanding. She did not understand this saying. But then finally, where does she end up at the end of the story? Treasuring. She goes from searching to scolding to misunderstanding and then finally treasuring. She thought about it more and more. And she realized he was not just the son of Mary and Joseph. He was the son of God. And she remembers what that angel told her back in chapter 1, verse 32. He will be the son of the Most High. Then again in verse 35, he will be the son of God. And she treasured those things. To treasure means to value them supremely, above our schedules, above every other thing that we treasure in love. She was willing to lay it all down and embrace who Jesus really thought he was. And she accepted for herself the claim that Jesus made about him being the son of God. Have you done that? Not just in a one-time experience, maybe sometime in your past when you begin your journey, but every day. Don't ever take a step away from Jesus, but to treasure him 
every day, to search for him every day. God, what are you going to do today? Where are we going to go? I want to see and be a part of what you're doing in this world, be a part of your kingdom. Why don't we bow our heads, close our eyes. And in this moment, can I just ask you, do you you have a sense that something's missing? You know what that is? That is the drawing of the Holy Spirit saying everything else that you're trying to fill the void in your life is leaving you unsatisfied. Listen, don't take another step. Don't go another day's journey without actively, intentionally, maybe even sacrificially, pursuing a fresh relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never had your sin forgiven, understand Jesus was our Passover lamb. He is the true and better temple where we can meet with him. He is our true high priest, our mediator between God and man. Have you received him as your own? If not, you can do that in this very moment. Just call out to him. Our pastors are always here at the end of this service. They'd love to receive you. They'd love to pray for you, answer any questions. If you want to make a profession of faith, you can do that this morning as they are here. Let me pray and we'll conclude. Father, thank you so much for your love for us that you would give us a story like this in the scripture. And Lord, our hearts so often are like Mary's. We we want to scold you because you act in ways that we just do not understand. And Lord, sometimes we want to try to control you. Forgive us for that. God, lead us to true understanding. And God, this morning we want to affirm that we find you to be our supreme treasure. Even when we don't understand, we trust you. We treasure you as our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.